Thanks for downloading the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast, an online educational resource dedicated to the overlap and exchange between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. You can visit us at fantasy-animation.org and get to grips with our archive of podcast episodes or check out our many blog posts that feature editorials, sequence analyses, film, TV, book and conference reviews and even reflections by animators and practitioners. You can also find us on a variety of social media from Twitter and Facebook to Reddit and Instagram or you can drop us a line at fananimresearch at gmail.com to join in the conversations, share a blog post idea or even offer your own take on the fantasy animation relationship. The episode you're about to hear was recorded in the giddy pre-lockdown days with special guest, the film composer, writer, performer and television presenter, Neil Brand. As a fantasy animation team, we were thinking about when and how best to release this uh, pre-COVID instalment and after much deliberation felt that this was as good a time as any to let you, the listeners, hear our thoughts on the computer animated film Rango. So please do sit back, relax and enjoy the show. Out of the dust came a man true and bold, champion of the fandango. By night he drank whiskey, by day killed Batman, and the townspeople knew him as Rango. Hello everybody and welcome to the latest episode of the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holliday. And me, Alex Sargent. So today marks a return uh, to something that I'm particularly interested in, the computer animated feature film, but I feel like we're going to do it in a slightly different way. This isn't Disney, this isn't Pixar, uh, this isn't even DreamWorks, it's um, it's something that's a bit perhaps left field, it's the 2011 uh, part animated, a little bit western, a bit of Johnny Depp film Rango, directed by uh, Gore Verbinski, famous from the um, Pirates of the Car- Caribbean films. Um, Alex has not seen this before, uh, so we've just watched it, I have seen it a couple of times, uh, and our special guest uh, is the reason why we are doing Rango, um, we're delighted to be joined by uh, Neil Brand, who is a dramatist and composer, he's also a, a silent film accompanist at London's National Film Theatre, uh, as well as an author. He's written a book called Dramatic Notes, uh, which focuses on the art of composing narrative music for the cinema, theatre, radio and television. Uh, and he's also a presenter uh, on a, a handful of BBC4 programmes, The Sound of Cinema, um, Sound of Song, uh, and more recently, The Sound of Movie Musicals, which was broadcast in 2018. Neil, thank you for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure. So um, when we get in touch with guests and ask them, or perhaps float ideas about which uh, animated fantasy, which fantasy animation they'd like to choose, um, we get all kinds of reasons, uh, you know, reasons why certain uh, film and television becomes um, the kind of the focus of their inquiry. Why Rango? Why was this is a? I wouldn't say that it's uh, um, a surprise, but when I saw your email that said, "Yeah, I want to do Rango," um, I may have made a noise, a squeal of delight. Why Rango? It, it, a weird set of recent circumstances led up to this, which was basically I have a ten-year-old boy, so for the last six years I've been watching a lot of children's films, and basically celebrating the fact that they are so vastly better than anything I grew up with up to the age of ten. Right. Uh, I don't mean, I mean, I, what I did grow up with was things like Mary Poppins, so I'm not taking away from any of that stuff. But in general, I think it's a golden age for children's film now. And I think any kid growing up in this generation who goes regularly to the cinema will be getting not only absolutely top of the range writing as well as top of the range animation, as well as very, very good, positive, liberal values of how to deal with parenting, how to deal with growing up, how to deal with changes, how to do all those things. All those things that Pixar and DreamWorks particularly yeah. have specialised in. And I felt strongly enough about that to ask the film programme if they let me do a thing about children's film, which was fine, and I kind of enjoyed it. 
But I said Rango, and they kind of went, oh, you are kidding. Johnny Depp as a chameleon. Yeah. Forget it. Yeah, lot, yeah, yeah, okay. And actually, I was really pleased to get the chance to talk about it in much more depth because Rango, not just from the music point of view, but I think generally, has got to be one of the most meta films I've ever seen. And it's, I'm very aware that it played entirely to my generation of cinephiles. If you were growing up and your formative years in the cinema of the 70s and 80s, then you will recognise so many homages in Rango. But also because Charlie really enjoyed it. He loved it. It made him laugh. It absolutely gripped him from start to finish. And when I watched it again with him, because I went out and bought the Blu-ray as soon as it came out, because I just thought, this is going on our shelves. Yeah. And once Charlie's too old to watch it, I will go on watching it. <laughs> yeah. It was partially because it is a handbook of the Western yeah. and Western tropes. Yep, yep. But also because I think more than anything else, and the music does enter into this, I'm getting there, but it is the first time I've seen a genuine sense of existential isolation put on a screen that has not been intended at a very adult, very sophisticated audience. You know, you expect it with Point Blank, you expect it with Vim Vendors, you expect it with uh, Paris, Texas. There it is, bang on that screen, out of Gore Verbinski, of all people. Yeah. Off the back of, you know, I mean, writers who are really, really fine. I can't remember the name of the writer right now, but this is someone who's written Bond and written God knows Oh, John Bond. Logan. John Logan. John Logan, yeah. Fantastic writer with a vast range of different genres he's written for. And there's no hint of Pirates of the Caribbean. There's no hint particularly of another Johnny Depp. This is so much the Johnny Depp that is that Hawaiian shirt-wearing lizard. And the other thing I really like about it, and I'm quite happy to go into much more detail about this. Is oh, we've, we've got time. This I, is going to be a good one. Yeah, I it's going to be a good one. I think it is very nearly Hans Zimmer's finest hour. Because I've always felt that when Hans goes, I'm creating something entirely new you've not seen before, <laughs> Dunkirk, I sit there going, you're kidding me. You know, I've heard this stuff before. I heard it in Tangerine Dream albums in the 1970s. This is not new, Hans. But Hans Zimmer let loose, no matter how much of it is him or his factory, or how much of it is somebody else, doesn't really matter, let loose on a Western and told, have fun, have a laugh. The very least you're going to start with is a mariachi band of owls commenting on the action. Yeah. The next thing you're going to get is, of course, the Apocalypse Now Flight of the Valkyries played on redneck banjo and uh, blown bottle and whistle or whatever. You know, first time I heard that combination was the Coen brothers uh, raising Arizona with the opening of that where you get the uh, hymn to joy done with a whistle and a guitar. You know, it's, it's just so beautiful. And yet the moments of genuine threat are moments of genuine threat done in a way that only hands understands which is three chords and a deep low rumble and it works so to have actually come away from that thing having expected to see a decent children's animation and actually come away with a guidebook to the western at least four levels of reality which you can negotiate yeah. to your delight for years afterwards wonderful performances 
Motion capture, I know, because I then watched the, the extra about the motion capture and about the idea that they actually made all these people perform the scenes they were going to be doing in front of a camera so as to get the body language and the facial as yeah. well. <clears throat> a wonderful homage to Chinatown, which I really wasn't expecting. And even now, if you say to people, it's an homage to Chinatown that I haven't seen Rango, they go, no, no, what do you mean? It's, it's Johnny Depp as a lizard. No, no, no. It is the entire world of Chinatown just yeah. minus Jack Nicholson. You've even got John Houston in the form of Ned Beatty as a wheelchair-bound uh, turtle who says things like, water, Mr. Rango, water is life. And you just think, oh, my God, that's completely brilliant. And those moments are so meta that, for me, they not only embrace the story that is being told, they embrace the cinema going of an entire generation of people, possibly two generations of people. Yeah. Actually, I mean, you, you've certainly answered the question why why Rango, but actually, the thing I was the thing I was go back to something you said right at the start, which is um, about this. You were expecting a certain you know level of engagement with a film that was a children's film, or was this um, was the, were those expectations set up by uh, Disney and Pixar and, and DreamWorks, and this for you felt something different from that type of computer animated film because certainly for me in, in work that I've done on computer animation this film did do something it kind of went off on a tangent so yeah. it seems like that was a similar sort of experience for you that the children's element that came from Disney and Pixar was being pushed against or also taken in new directions I'm not even sure we saw the trailer for Rango most things we go and see we've seen the trailer for and I don't think we had but Gore Verbinski was a very good background because he just said well Pirates of the Caribbean is going to be great yeah, because actually, uh, I, I think Pirates of the Caribbean films are really fine, particularly the first one, anyway. Yeah. They go off a bit after that. But the whole thing about the way that the, 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 the thing was pushed at us as a film to potentially go and see, I thought was very, very well done and kind of funny and kind of daft. What I think I knew straight from the start was that it wasn't going to be like Pixar or or DreamWorks, it already had a very different feel to it. Yeah. And then in those first two minutes or so of the film, they basically laid their cards on the table, not just saying this is not Pixar and DreamWorks, this is nothing like anything you've yeah. ever seen before. You know, this We are taking you into the theatricality of the storytelling. So yeah, I think we went expecting we were going to get entertainment, I was also really looking forward to Charlie getting sort of his first Western. Yeah, me, yeah, yeah. Know. And I think more than anything else, it was as soon as he saw Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp, he's got to be pirates. And then you see, oh, the director of pirates. Oh, right, well, we'll go and see that. So actually it was an animation sold entirely off the back of a live action film. Oh, okay. I think. I do remember the trailer being, if I remember right, the teaser trailer was just that orange fish that went from screen left to screen right, and that was it. It was just, uh, and we'll, you know, we might talk about that orange fish later on. Uh, Alex, in terms of a, a fantasy, obviously the film does something, um, uh, I think for animation, it, it cues something in animation uh, fans because of the way that it looks and what it sort of does with that CG template, if there is one. In terms of fantasy, how does this fit in with, with your, you don't quite know what to make of it, do you? I don't, but I'm starting to, after Neil's comments, I've got, I've got questions about existentialism, I've got questions about owls, we've got, we've got a lot to unpack here. Um, but, but I think what you're saying there about it, the meta element, I think, it did strike me in that this is a, you know, a, a cliche to say,
say, but this is very much in interested in the process of storytelling, mm. right? And, and, and telling tales and the power of telling tales. And that's a feature of sort of fantasy fiction in, in, in sort of um, more generally. Uh, fantasy fiction announces itself in a way most fiction likes to try and pretend it isn't telling a story, whilst mm. fantasy is very much sort of, you know, presentational in that respect. And we get, don't we, these sort of the opening five minutes we have, um, we get the mariachi bands that sort of sing the song of Rango, that tell us the tale of Rango, or promise to tell us the tale of Rango, and then we go straight into Rango telling his own story that is then revealed to be a fabrication because he's in his sort of little... Um, so, so I completely get... Um, I'd like to unpack more what, how it's telling a story about cinema, but I definitely got it was telling a story about stories um, and the importance of that throughout the plot. So, so there's lots to riff on here, and I've got sort of folk tales and folk ballads and this idea of joy in storytelling that it definitely goes with, and perhaps that does play into the sort of meta dimensions. You said you mentioned Chinatown. What, what else is it riffing on then, if it's in terms of cinematic? We've got the Western, we've got the... But like canonical Westerns, that you said it's a handbook of the Western, so it's yeah. not riffing yeah. on obscure... No, like no. This is quite, it seems to be quite an explicit itemisation of yeah. generic tropes. I think without a doubt the uh, the spaghetti westerns, and I think yes. very specifically Once Upon a Time in the West, mm -hmm. where you even have a moment in the town which completely recreates the station at the opening of Once Upon a Time in the West, where you hear the sound of the of the of the of the, uh, the sort of turning windmill thing. It was obviously a pump, some kind, just literally doing ee, 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 as it goes around. There's uh, two or three moments of John Ford in there, including obviously some of the iconic stuff with the street and the seeing another gunfighter through somebody's legs. Legs, yeah, yeah, yeah. But also the galloping across the, uh, the, the, the desert to go and sort something out. And even, to my mind, the sitting around the campfire, campfire sequence, which was utterly beautiful, I thought, and came at just the moment where we all just needed a breather. We'd had so much stuff coming at us, and it was so bloody surreal, and it was so full of all these different things, that you just suddenly have a bunch of people sitting down, and you have this one central character who's like the kind of Indian guide, who's a big eagle, who seems to kind of embody some form of spirituality about the West. And there's a scene, as I remember, I think in The Searchers, where John Wayne is sitting with a couple of guys around a fire, and it's the only time you hear Ethan Evans questioning his own motives is when he's sitting around the fire, although it's done in a very John Wayne way. But that whole kind of idea, the John Ford idea of having to go up against insuperable odds with doubts and having to deal with those doubts, <clears throat> not in a we-just-have-to-do-this way, but in a way that accepts you're vulnerable as you're doing it. Um, the whole idea of the, of the town being very specific looks and types of people and the town itself, I think, is High Plains Drifter. And obviously, Clint Eastwood in a golf cart being the spirit of the West, you've kind of then got this extraordinary mashup of Hollywood and the Western, whereby as soon as you see a figure wearing the Clint Eastwood caftan hat and so forth, but he gets in and out of the golf cart, you know, whoa, where are we going with that? That's what I say about it being about cinema as well, as the moments, for instance, and I suppose in a way, you know, you almost name any kind of great director of Westerns, Howard Hawks or whatever, 
the saloon, when he walks into the saloon, obviously everybody shuts up as soon as he goes through those doors. But then when you look at the inside of the saloon, it is absolutely stuffed with characters we've not yet met that we then meet in absolute close-up as he walks through the saloon. And the light is only hitting certain parts of the saloon. So most of it is this dark fug of people who are all set to kill him as he walks towards the the bar. But there's a beauty about it. It's shot beautifully. And then I think we're on to the kind of post-traumatic traumatic westerns, as it were. So the westerns of the 90s and the 100s, where they're actually getting more with films like The Long Riders, um, Dancing with Wolves. They're getting more out of the look of the atmosphere and the atmosphere of the landscape than they are necessarily out of the Western tropes of the story. The content is less what we would think of as being a Western. You know, black hat versus white hat, good versus evil. And it's about people in a landscape and that landscape being beautifully delineated. And then I think we're into the Western of the 1990s and onwards. Mm. Can I ask about the, the opening section before? Because we sort of jumped ahead to this when he arrives mm. at the, um, the Western town and it very much sort of fits within that. I mean, the only one would obviously be the... The, the Man With No Name and the uh, Fistful of Dollars trilogy and we got the sort of, you know, um, it's the first one, is the Fistful of Dollars where he's the, um, the, you know, the Man With No Name arrives to sort out the bandits in the town. Yeah. So we get Rango, the lawless Rand Rango turning up to sort out the law in, in, in um, I forget the name of the town. And it's Dirt. 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 So it's a feature of this podcast where I can never remember any actual specifics yeah. of the film we just watched. <laughs> so I'm glad to continue my um, persona. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, before that, we've got this almost psychedelic... Um, uh, you know, twenty-minute sequence where, well, well, as you say, Rango is is gripped by existential despair Ooh. and loneliness, um, <laughs> breaks out of a cage, and then wanders the desert a little yeah. bit, right? And and to me, I'm not because there, there's something uh, meta going on there because the two cameos we get in this movie are Clint Eastwood at the end, not Clint Eastwood, but Clint Ooh. Eastwood, and Johnny Depp at the beginning, Ooh. where the, the, he nearly gets run over by himself. Ooh. Um, which is a sort of almost you know fear and loathing esque sort of sequence where oh. it's all quite psychedelic. Um, what you know what do we what can we what do we make of that bit of the movie? Cause it's quite long. It's about twenty minutes it before he arrives at the, the western. Again, I think there's two things going on there, and this may sound apologist, but it's really not intended to be. I didn't have any of these intellectual things going on in my head while I was watching it. It just kind of hit me as I was watching it. First up, I think that they are setting out to give everybody the sense that what happens in the western is bound to happen in a in a hot isolating place so what happens in the west stays in the west it is a lawless place it's a place unless you understand that you're not going to get what a western is and so starting off with johnny depp as this kind of actor figure albeit a pathetic one surrounded by inanimate objects and then saying and then he has to be jerked out of his out of his reality by some, by some ironic circumstance that forces him into conflict, <laughs> yeah. crash onto the road. He then meets Alfred Molinar as that desert animal that's been run over mm -hmm. and has a hole through him. So we're immediately in a world in which that kind of mind-blowing fantasy can happen, but he's still alive and he's still speaking. And suddenly, after Rango's been fired from one glory to another, He's, up, he's all right, he's crossed the road, he's got his stick, he is a seeker. What I think he's doing there is also, for the kids, is basically leading them by the nose through a series of very vivid and very personal experiences. 
You're there with him mm -hmm. all the way through. Jow, pow, pow. They're used to that. They're not used to the levels on which a Western, or indeed on this Western, are going to work. But they are used to the idea of slapstick and quite scary slapstick at that. So he takes us through all that. He then takes us into the desert. That extra, I found it really scary when Rango looks up and the first layer of his skin comes off. Yeah. And then the second layer of skin <laughs> yeah. comes That was off. the first bit Alex laughed at <laughs> yeah. in the film. And, and slowly sort of dis disintegrates in the frame and gets smaller and smaller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I like the idea of scary slapstick. You're yeah. right, yeah. So that by the time we then get into the town, we have... We've, we've like had our kind of processing done. We're ready for this. The mind is shaped for just how out there this story is going to get. And we'll sort of ex accept anything. But it's really interesting, not on a kind of, oh, well, what the hell, Ren and Stimpy kind of way. This is a beautifully controlled storytelling set of contrivances. And that's what I think, that's what I was amazed at afterwards. I suppose what we've not addressed, and which obviously has a deal on all of this, is why did they make it? Never mind why I chose it. Why on earth did they make this film? Mm. Because it does seem like Fabinski and Logan and the other writer sat down together in a log cabin or whatever, having either got the job or been given the job, and planned out what their favourite possible way of making an animated western could possibly be. They filled it with their mates. They shot it real in some warehouse in Hollywood. They then turned it into animation. They made that animation as bespoke as possible so as to make as much reference to the films they loved as possible. And at the end of it, they had made a film they'd really, really enjoyed, the film they would want to see. And I think that's, that explains everything, including the Mariachi Owls, which when I watched it again recently in order to talk about it with you guys, I suddenly thought, bloody hell, the Mariachi Owls as a Greek chorus on the narration of all this are the exact opposite of existential angst because they basically say, well, this is all predetermined. This is all going to happen. We're going to tell you what's going to happen. It's and when does he die? Yeah, Soon. he's going to die. Yeah. yeah, which is a great gag. It's the same gag, unfortunately, all the way through, right to the very end. But that, it's like, maybe that was there as well for the kids, that they may not get existential angst, but they'll get mariachi owls, because that's what they do get from Pixar and DreamWorks. But of course, existentialism is uh, a reaction to the inevitability of, of a narrative, right? The, the myth, you know, is it Camus in the myth of Sisyphus? Mm. You, you know, you know the story, he's going to keep pushing the rock up and up and down, but it's, but it's how he reacts whilst doing it that's the key. Yeah. And I think you're right with that opening se sequence in that it's incredibly mythic, you know, hero crosses the threshold, uh, meets a wise <laughs> soothsayer. Um, you know, it, it's Joseph Campbell 101, you know, George Lucas, seat your heart out. Um, <coughs> simple, clean storytelling. I think children probably wouldn't be that wrong-footed by the beats of the narrative because that's the beat of of, of every you know mainstream narrative mm. but it's it's the it's the sensibility while this is all happening and the loneliness while this is all happening because when you know when woody gets knocked out of the the um, bedroom in toy story and that kicks into gear he's at least got buzz with him yeah um and um I, it would be great if I could have another example now, but I can't think but of one. But there was someone in the room you know, who knows went, a bit about animation. Yeah, Imagine sure. that. Yeah, yeah. And speaks about it in terms of genre and generic <laughs> conventions. Well, alas, no, yes. But so, Chris, yes. Um, yeah. You know, these kind of beats are, are recognisable mm. as tropes in fanfic, but I think the way it does it, there's a certain despair of it. There's a certain um, 
um, absurdity in the true sense of the word to it and a loneliness to it, which is those existential beats. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's, uh, you know, it, it is this, for me, it's the hybrid of two genres, i.e. the Western, but also, dare I be so well, the computer animated film. And, and I think part of its reflection, for me, the, my first note on it is that it's the anti-Toy Story beginning. It's very similar to the opening of Toy Story, which begins with that play on Andy's wallpaper, which is Clouds. And, and the joke of the opening of Toy Story is that it's asking the audience to sort of be like, oh, we didn't know what computer animated films were going to look like, and they look like that. Oh, I see, it's wallpaper. Right, oh, I see. So it's that, that sort of self-reflexive. And a lot of computer animated films do this by playing with the opening, the kind of uh, false opening frame. Uh, Monsters, Inc. does it with a sequence that is a simulation of, a, of scaring. Um, Bolt does it. You find the opening is at the start of a, a television program, and the, the screen goes up, and suddenly we're in a warehouse, which is impossible, given the kind of dra drama of the sequence. Um, but also, it's similar to Toy Story insofar as it's about the inanimate object, but actually they don't come to life. The toys that he plays with, ne that fish never comes to life. So in the opening sequence where he's, he's kind of putting on this very hammy performance uh, and using the props that are around him as fellow characters, there's never any threat that they're going to come to life. And that's where the, the sort of anti-Toy Story, which obviously Toy Story is itself a, um, a film about existential crises, when Buzz realises he's just a toy. This film takes that and sort of uses toys, performance, sentience, and has that sort of reflection on, yeah, well, these toys aren't going to come to life. It's, he is really just, just alone. And then we get the narrativization of the journey narrative. Uh, and a particular iteration of the journey narrative in computer animated films, this sort of, uh, what I write about in, in my book, plug, um, <laughs> a, a flushed away journey narrative where a character is suddenly, you know, um, transported from one milieu to the other. But it's also a chance for com the computer animated film to itself play with voyage between disparate, you know, look at world building, look at this, the spaces that we've constructed. So when he says what we need is a moment of conflict, the, uh, you know, a moment that propels our protagonist into conflict, he's just narrativized the flushed away journey narrative. And then he becomes, you know, thrown across the screen. Um, so I like the fact that it it has this sort of anti-Toy Story beginning, or the the uh, comment seems to be quite reflective about the idea of the false frame. And at one point, you think he's breathing on the camera, mm. but he's not. He's mm. breathing on the the sort of fourth wall of his of his um, glass and that's case. That's also how he then becomes the gunslinger. By they, he makes a little square of himself in the mirror and sees it and realises, I can be anybody I yeah. want to be. It's really smart. I think the film is really, the more I, kind of we talk about it, I think it's it's really smart. It, it doesn't, it's very economical. I mean, it's, it's long, and actually well, I think one of the comments we had after we watched the film was, okay, it could be, it could be 10, 15 minutes shorter maybe, but actually the, I think you need, as you say, there's 20 minutes at the start before he even meets the rest of the, the mm. sort of characters, where he's just kind of alone. He meets a couple of couple of characters he has there's a set piece with the um the sort of eat hawk um mm. at the start uh, but yeah i mean it's i think it's a it's also an interesting film i think more broadly and and in terms of performance and you mentioned motion capture what, what's interesting about the film is well two things around motion capture one it's technic it's not technically motion capture because of the backlash against motion capture so the film is released in 2011 the same year as mars needs mums a computer animated film that was made using motion capture that kind of signaled the death knell of the first 10 years of mocap so beowulf uh, christmas carol polar express all the zemeckis movies of the early 2000s um, a lot of the production of this movie which is very quick 20 days uh, and then the animation period afterwards um, a lot of the discourses around the film was this isn't motion capture like you know you know it what we did was we recorded them and then used that footage as 
as its own data and it created this this sort of weird category of what they called like e-motion capture which was not motion capture as you understand it with the sensors all over the body but a different kind of we've used the footage as a simply a reference point mm. but if you put them side by side look how fascinating it is to be able to map those hollywood stars onto these sort of anthropomorphic characters that they play so which, which is a development of the nick park thing of yeah. having a mirror and yeah. looking at himself in the mirror to see how gromit would react so the raise of an eyebrow or you get that I get I think a lot with computer generated animation where you have you have you can see people's facial reactions. There's a moment in Despicable Me, which I've found myself doing a lot now, where Gru finds out that the kid sitting outside the bank is the is the one who's managed to hold up he's stolen a pyramid. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <coughs> which is another interesting uh, that Despicable Me begins with a similar sort of simulation where the they steal real life I think in the case of Pyramid, but it, and then it turns out to be a fake. Well, anyway, yeah. Spoiler alert. But with Karen. that, with Gru, when Gru's told that, instead of going, oh wow, his face literally does a. He looks across, can't believe it because the guy was such a loser, and then does a kind of, kind of whoa, kind of moo with his face. And I just thought that's someone in the studio. That's one of the animators, or that's someone one of the animators knows, who, when told something which you think is going to surprise them a lot just does that mouth movement thing. And I think that, that, that in a way is where I can see what they were after with Rango, because yeah, there's no two ways about it. The snake really does look like Bill Nye. <laughs> the, the, the turtle really does look like Ned Beatty. And that, then seeing Nye and Beatty playing out the scene on the opposite sides of the desk, where Bill Nye leans in and bangs the desk with his, with his fist, Instead of which the snake goes right in close, and his all his his, his the rest rest of him is curling around behind. They're getting the, uh, the the they're getting the sense of the scene out of the body movement of the animals. But again, I think it's interesting that the animals change so much through the process of it as well. The first animals that Rango meets are real animals; they're real desert animals. And going back to your point about that opening, it hadn't occurred to me before. Kids won't get being alone, about to die in the desert, but they will get the idea that he's lonely. He's in that tank on his own. Everything around him doesn't move. It's not alive. Yeah. And you actually, there's a moment where I think you hear that. <laughs> you hear that for the first time. As he's looking on me, he says, well, you know, am I here on my own? And it's like, and it's like the wind blows and it's the wind of existential awareness. We all get, like, bloody hell, I am just here. Like, there is no one to help. And then his life is in danger. And then he goes into the desert. And then he's threatened by hawks. And then he's threatened by the people who want to kill him in the village. So actually, that sense of isolation has to be there before he goes off into the desert. And quite a bold way to begin a, as you said, like a computer animated film aimed perhaps at children there is a sense in which you it's softened a little bit maybe by the mariachi band at the start which sort of is a nice i wonder if the mariachi band was a late addition because, because you can't begin a film in that way you need it sort of softened <laughs> up a little bit not for under 10 year olds yeah it, it, it feels to me like something for all the fact it's a laugh and there's it does feel kind of imposed on the, the structure as, of a, the as a nice sort of buffer or bookends yeah. 
Just pausing the podcast and our discussion with Neil for a moment, we wanted to remind listeners again about our next Listener's Choice episode, which comes out of our previous episode on Bright and is on the lookout for your suggestions for your top or favourite or perhaps downright curious fantasy animation buddies. Send us your ideas on which unlikely or outlandish combinations stand out in the animated fantasy or which dastardly duos make the perfect or imperfect pairing. You can send these via social media, either on Twitter at FanAnimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research, on Facebook by searching Fantasy Animation, uh, via Reddit or Instagram, again at FanAnimResearch, or good old-fashioned email by sending your suggestions to FanAnimResearch at gmail.com and we'll add your name to the proverbial hat. While I've got you, please do think too about supporting us here at Fantasy Animation by giving us a star rating or even better, a short review comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this discussion. We'd really appreciate a note on how we're doing, what you like, and how much you're enjoying Alex's impossible questions. Every little helps shoot us up the rankings, so if you've got a spare moment, we welcome your positive feedback and reviews. But in the meantime, let's get back to the show. But the effect of that is that it's constantly playing against its structure. There's a tension, isn't there, between this you know, nice, simple narrative that they keep telling and what actually feels like is happening. Because I think that the, the really wrong-footing bit about that first 20 minutes is you have absolutely no understanding of who Rango is mm. as a character mm. because you don't get the first five minutes where he sings a song about how he wishes he could you know, um, you know, become sheriff of a western town one day and then we, we're hooked, right, yeah. we get our protagonist's motivation, we're, we're off here. We don't know who he is as a character and that's true because he doesn't know who he is as a character. Ooh. It's back to this, um, his identity is, is gathered throughout the movie and we never see him be himself before Ooh. he starts pretending to be Rango. Yeah, because so he's introduced as a performer. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, it, albeit the performance still gives quite a lot of indication of what kind of character is behind that. Sure. But he's obviously smart. He's a motor mouth. He's seen a lot of movies. He's seen a lot of dramas. He's very West Coast, <laughs> culturally aware, yeah. you know. So from that point of view, that will make sense. But it's interesting what you were saying, though, Chris, about the fact that he's alone with these inanimate objects. If the film had started with Rango and A and other lizard in that tank and Rango had lost the other lizard the whole film would have been about when's he going to meet the other lizard again and I think that's probably another point at which it departs from yeah. a lot of these particularly the kind of narrative uh, the animated family films is that you are set up to expect a hell of a lot more in usually than you're set up to expect with Rango all you're set up to expect with Rango is the unexpected and after a while, I think the big trust on the part of Babinski and the filmmakers was that kids would get that, which they seem to have done. Albeit, I'd be the first to say this is not a film, this is a film aimed far more solidly at people of Fabinski's age than of Charlie's age. Yeah. You know, I mean, my boys, he loved it. It's not his all-time favourite film, although he does like watching it again and again, which is interesting. But... Almost no one else seems to have seen this film in my kind of social crowd because it's come as a surprise yeah. when I've said to people, yeah. Rango. Yeah. And particularly amongst the cinephiles who just laugh it entirely out of court. They have, who really have no idea. And it surprises me, it really does. It's interesting you say about narrative. Sorry, Alex, I just, just made me think though, as you were talking about narrative and the opening, and actually, Neil, your point about um, that he isn't, there's no threat of a kind of return because there isn't another chameleon that he had then has to return to. I'd also make a, or stake a similar claim with regards to his owners. I can imagine a version of this film where he has to get back to his owners, where actually we see his owners from the back, and that's it. 
So actually, he's not. His motivation isn't. Mm. And actually, I think it's your point about the kind of hero's narrative. It's a hero's narrative, whilst also at the same time, he's totally aimless because he's not himself at the start. He's performing as something else, though we do get an insight into his character. Um, we don't see the people that own him. He's a pet chameleon, but who owns him? There's never the threat that he's going to return to that stability because it was never that stable they in don't the first even place. Stop they after don't after he's smashed out through the back of the car. Yeah, the fact that he's is in a car, he's on the move <laughs> already, so he's really dislocated from his place and space. So he's sort of in this liminal limbo of unfixedness because he's not anchored to a particular space which allows that aimlessness I think to to kind of come out. And then ultimately the we won't talk about the end, but it, it's not a, it's not about a return to a particular character or I've got to get back. There's no threat of a deadline in lots and lots of you get that a lot in in certainly computer animated films. I need to return by this time in order to do this, so I can't return because I've fallen in love with somebody and 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 that's really my new path. Mm. It doesn't do any of those. It's it's both familiar and different at the same time, and I kind of I kind of love that about the film. From the point of view, I think of kids. I suppose what they get straight away from his situation is that what he's immediately doing is looking for a friend, mm. looking for someone who will be on his side. So we have the five minutes in the Terranium, we then have the 20 minutes in the desert, where he meets potential <laughs> friends who aren't going to be friends at all. He meets beans, yeah. and immediately we meet another a female looking animal who looks a bit like him we assume there's probably going to be something going on between so we quite like something to happen between him and beans but it really ain't going to partially because beans has got her own agenda and partially because they're not the same species you can tell that yeah. so how does that work so there's all the way through there is this thing that the kids are hooked into which is when is rango going to find someone who wants what he wants and you know that again it's not an intellectual process but I think that's what is at the heart of the start of the film, is if you can make them like him, which you kind of do, it's quite fun and funky what he's doing in the Terranium, then you really want him to just to survive. That would be nice, seeing as we've invested so much in him already. Then we quite like him to find someone who wants what he wants. So that's a strong enough hook to get us through the first half an hour, maybe 40 minutes of the film, as long as there's a load of other stuff to watch and enjoy as well. And that, I think, is absolutely the case. The kids are getting off on all sorts of other things to do with the aesthetic, as well as to do with the characterisation and the story plot. I mean, it's, it's, it's held together very well. I agree, the point at which I would sort of like try and speed things up is about three quarters of the way through where we get it. We get what's happening in the water, we get what's happening with Beans, we get what's happening with Bill Nye and Ned Beatty. We just really like it wrapped up a bit quicker. And then I watched the extended version oh, of yeah. Blu-ray, which has got, I'm so pleased they cut that whole last sequence with them in some kind Turning of like into Florida. Yeah, mud. Yeah. Rather than dirt. Dreadful, rather than dirt, yeah. which was truly dreadful. But yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, that's probably another reason I love the film so much, is that there is plenty there on an absolutely basic narrative basis, while all this incredible fireworks of other meta stuff is going on. What's the music doing? We might, we'll get to the Western town at some point, but what is the music doing in the first 20 minutes? Let's just make sure we talk more longer about the 20 minutes than there is yeah. in the film. Um, because you mentioned sort of some, some I don't know, light motifs or whatever that's set Ooh. up. What's, what's, what's the music doing to help all this along? Or? Well, 
there, there's a little moment in the Terran, in the Terranium which is really a bit odd, and I could have lived without really, in which he becomes all these various different people he could potentially be. And the music changes every time to be the sound of Jurassic Park, the sound of Mariachi, the sound of a great lover, the sound of a whatever, the sound of a medieval knight, all that sort of thing. When he then actually is in the desert, and I think this is another thing that it works so well, is that we've had that little suggestion in the Terranium of dee 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 da 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 dum that sort of whistle and that sort of sense of isolation and emptiness, which is straight out of the uh, the the the, the uh, spaghetti westerns. When we get to the desert itself, it's pure jeopardy, and a little bit of acoustic guitar. So we are on the Mexican border, like we didn't already know that from the mariachi owls. But we're also in a world, and we know that this is not going to be the triumphalist Western. Music from the Western of the Golden Age is almost always referring either to a kind of sense of uh, ambition or the beauty of the landscape, one or the other. And in this case, that's really not the case. So the music throughout that whole 20 minutes is entirely referential down to the Johnny Depp character, down to rank. The music might be about the landscape, but it's about the landscape's effect on him, not the landscape's effect on us. So what it does is build this massive tent of isolation around us all. A Terranium, just a Terranium in which there are more things out to kill him. Yeah. And which means that when he meets Beans, for instance, you kind of go, oh, thank God, somebody we can sort of recognise, even if she's weird and does that strange freezing thing. She doesn't get any music to begin with. It's an interesting one. The music still stays referential to, to the Johnny Depp character until he gets to the town and really only gets going when he's decided who he is. So the moment at which he sees himself in the mirror and goes, I could be a great gunfighter, that suddenly comes in out of nowhere. And it's the sound of someone wearing shoes that are way too big for him, you know what I mean? And you get that show, you get that sense that we're going to watch Rango just really get off on this now. We've seen how he preps, we've seen the breadth of his imagination in that Terranium. Now we're going to get the breadth of his imagination when he actually has to get out of this place alive by building a character they're all going to want to buy a drink for. And that, that D-D-D-D will come in again later, as were the <laughs> thing. They're almost the same notes, but they're done in very, very different ways. And that becomes then the musical tension throughout the whole film, is between his rather ramshackle confidence and the, the, in the character he's chosen to build, and the sheer oppressiveness of this killing world around him, at, which any, at any point of which he could get, he'd just be, he'd be out, he'd be gone. And that then becomes the link to the water, because that the water is the only thing that will get any of them out from this frightening landscape of death and heat and vultures, which the music just has. It's mostly, as I say, it's kind of it's it's partially the the spaghetti western guitar, it's partially the spaghetti western whistle, but also every now and then you do get genuine kind of woof stuff, you know, real kind of proper threat. It's interesting that when he is running away from the vulture in the town, we get pure knockabout slapstick music. 
I think it is actually kind of like um, running away music, no ding 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 ding, which you'd sort of expect, but the fact that it comes then actually just makes the actions more funny. You know, it's not there to be about him. We're not suddenly worried he's not going to get away from this. We actually aren't worried about him at all. You kind of know he will, even if he's caught sitting on the toilet and the vulture takes the toilet yep. apart. It'll be the toilet paper hanging from his foot that shows the vulture where he's going. <laughs> all that stuff is pure old-style slapstick. So at that point, all the jeopardy's gone. But again, it's another moment. It's the, the kids absolutely howled at that. It was the first time Charlie was actually helpless with laughter in the film. And again, you kind of need it. <coughs> it's like... <coughs> It's like you know my take on what a musical should do. A musical is there to kind of provide certain massive moments that you've paid hundreds of pounds to go and see. So as long as the musical has at one point the entire cast on a massive stage, all tap dancing at the same time and all finishing junk, junk, junk you've had your 85 quid's worth. Mm. So as long as at some stage in Rango, Rango's, and Rango runs funny. We've already seen that in The Bottle. And because it's Johnny Depp, he runs screaming like Johnny Depp, which is very funny, because Johnny Depp also runs funny in the, in the Pirates of the Caribbean. Watching him run away from, with toilet paper hanging from his leg from a vulture that's trying to kill him, when you kind of know he's going to be fine, is just a pure little bit, little gift for everybody, kids and the adults. There you go, this is going to be a laugh. And then we'll give you Bill Nye, who could potentially kill him. Yeah. So not to oversimplify it, but what you're saying next, there's lots to unpack, but are you basically sort of like, it's almost like the music climbs out of his own head as the film climbs out of his own head, as he starts putting on the character of Rango and, and becoming the character of Rango and the film adopts the swagger, the confidence that he's projecting. I think and that's we exactly move, it. We move yeah. from being terrified of the desert because he's terrified of the desert to actually, you know, if he isn't Rango yet, the music is being Rango for him. That's exactly it. And again, whether this was Verbinski or or Zimmer, it's smart as a whip. Because, you know, we we the music is as much part of leading the audience into a film as it is anything else. And, you know, on the series that I did, Hans made a big thing quite rightly about the fact that he'd persuaded um, Ridley Scott to do a, an opening to uh, Gladiator, which was much more kind of peaceful and easygoing, and was the hand training across the wheat, and then we went to the forest and the battle in the forest, because he said you've got to have the contrast. And I can well imagine whether it was Hans Zimmer who said you'd need mariachi owls, <laughs> which wouldn't surprise me in the least, or or but I can ima well imagine it was Hans Zimmer saying, look, I've got this really good sort of swagger number for Johnny's character, but we can't have it until he starts to swagger and even then if he's not swaggering full on he'll be swaggering full on the music even if he's not swaggering full on as, as that character so yeah I, I think absolutely it the, the the music is never referring outside the character and it's an interesting one because it's one of the things that actually you can you can lose your concentration on a western if the western if the music of the western gets too hung up on the landscape if the music's going wow this is fantastic or, you know, isn't this a beautifully realised Western town? While what you're trying to concentrate on is this particular guy here who's about to get killed, for instance. You can tell, and it happens a lot of, more often with Westerns than it does with other things, that the music is actually drawing you into the wrong thing to be concentrating on. What they, they really avoid that with this. The fact we've already heard 
the alone music, if you like, before he goes into the desert alone. We've heard it when he's created that little, do you say, breath, the breathe on the camera moment, breathe on the terrarium moment. So that doesn't then change when we've got this huge, great landscape, beautifully realised landscape, changes of weather, stuff like that. And those too, I might add, are then going to be used as sort of surreal moments in the film later, almost dream sequences in which we see these strange things in the desert that are much more fundamentally and sort of elementally alive with water than even the people that we've been, we've been sort of introduced to as characters. That very much then links into that as well. There, 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 there is no beauty about this film in the score that is not there within the actions of the characters, first and foremost. I mean, I was thinking, actually, if the texture of the music either, not juxtaposes, but complements, brings out certain elements of the story that the characters haven't realised, or I was thinking about the, about the sound of dirt more broadly, given that it, because it's scorched and dry and dusty, um, kind of, I, there's lots of clinking of glass, um, and the idea that, I, well, I wrote down that dirt somehow has hard edges. Yeah. That there's a lot of hard edges in the location, and I think one that comes from the fact it's a location that seems to be built from the scraps of the real world, i.e., bottles and jars and um, and gas canisters and all these sorts of things. And computer animated films, uh, if you if you know your Wally. There's certainly an investment in the, in the scraps of a certain kind of society that have been discarded. They've lost that kind of function, but they can assume new functions based on um, scale or whatever. But I think this idea that, that... So it comes from that, but there's something about rank. It, the, the sound feels dry. And I don't know what I mean by that, but there's lots of clinking and metal on metal and, and spurs making noises. So even the sound design, I feel, is very... I don't know. There's something quite... Um, I don't know, within its broader agricultural narrative, mm. if you like, there is something quite clunky and clinky and, and it has hard edges, if that makes sense. I think that's absolutely true. And again, I can see that with Fabinski and the way that he deals with the landlocked side of the Pirates of the Caribbean films. You always do hear the click of a pistol. You always do yeah. hear the sound of a sword. You hear the clanks of, of feet on metal or feet on wood. I think that's that that again really really helps to make the town come alive because we've all seen plenty of kind of computer generated western towns but if you really work on the sound design of a western town you are getting so much more there about that that I, I mean I don't know whether it was ILM I assume it was did the sound for it I'm not sure um, um, or Skywalker sound oh yeah so yeah uh, yeah yeah, so Island, if it's yeah. if it's the Randy Tom crowd, then yeah, it would be absolutely spot on all that stuff. And I can well imagine Babinski being actually quite uh, hung up on the sound being as good as possible, given that he's dealing with an in, uh, an animated narrative, because usually his his sound is is very very good with the live action stuff. It would have been important to him that they would have caught things like that, and that there's as much of that in the in the score as possible. But the score also is dry, so there's no sweeping strings, there's no big thick textures of sound, there's lots of small textures of guitar, whistle, um, oh, even things like sort of Jaws harp, stuff like that, they're all dry sounds, you don't get, you get the whistle, even the whistle sounds dry, 
it doesn't sound there's no lushness in any yeah. of the music or the or or, or even the, uh, the the sort of the, the images and the moments I mean I I'd forgotten entirely that moment where he dreams himself in a desert he dreams himself underwater and suddenly he's floating in this water and it's like you it's it's like a massive great signifier for the rest of us you know the water's out there it, it, he's not they're not just sort of there's something going on here you know not necessarily for the kids but possibly even there the music doesn't suddenly become oh we're all flooded with water it's just the sounds of water and then once the water's gone down this very dry field again again I think that will probably have come out of conversation and that you know this is one thing that Hans Zimmer really gets in a big way is this idea of an environment within which the music's going to work an environment within which this music sounds right, and then you cut out anything else from what that oral palette is going to be. And he, he talked when I interviewed him about, you know, I, I need to get the sound of a film under my hands. Well, that is not just that spread of notes, it's that spread of textures that he's got sitting there on his computer screen in front of him. That will have been absolutely fundamental to the way that he scored this film. I'm, I th I no, think, I'm afraid I think it's time for my impossible question oh, of each episode. I thought we'd go, avoided it. It's, it's not going to go to Chris this time, it's going to go to yes. Neil. Um, um, what sounds do fantasy and animations make? Um, so is there a Keep certain sonic register that audiences are expecting from a movie like this that means that the composer is naturally inclined to use different kinds of instrumentation or different kinds of melodic um, patterns or anything? Um, or do you just go, okay, it doesn't matter that this is you know, a lizard running around on an animation stage. Um, we can treat this like it were the man with no name mm. in a dusty old Mexican town and we should treat the same you know, if we want the audience to believe in this, they often, you know, a lot of special effect artists will talk about this. They don't want, you know, them to separate the, the special effects craft from the from from um, the live action craft. Is it the same with music, or is there such a thing as a sort of fantastical sounding score or an animated sounding score? Uh, it, it, I do think that, in partial answer to your impossible yes. question, it's better than the, me. Yeah. Usually. <laughs> <laughs> I think in the case certainly of. Uh, composers, I mean Hans Zimmer has said it about Rango and I, I think there's no doubt about it, it's also the same for the Kung Fu Panda film and John Powell said it about How to Train Your Dragon it is a license to have fun and to enjoy and to riff off the genres that you love so I think John Powell brought into Dragon which makes a huge difference a kind of folksy Celtic sound, which to my mind not only gave more of a kind of background history to what we were watching in terms of these, quote, Vikings, who were about as Viking as, you know, your average people living in Glasgow now kind of thing, and you know, gave it a real sense of place and of a texture of the music, which was really, really good. And so as soon as you thought, well, these aren't Vikings, these are actually Scots, people so all of the suddenly all the the the, um, the argot sounds right the music sounds right that feeling of being able to if necessary punch out a dragon feels right but also wanting to ride a dragon feels right all of that suddenly played beautifully into making the world of how to train your dragon 
very, very rewarding for all of us, adults and children, and those of us who knew about music just as much. I, I was really pleased that John Powell got an Oscar nod for, uh, for the second one. And definitely, when kids go and see animations, and I wonder how far, I don't know what Chris's response would be to this, I've always felt this about animation. Was the Tom and Jerry program in a 1930s or 40s film lineup? So if you had, I don't know, a B picture, Tom and Jerry, the news, newsreel, the main feature, was the Tom and Jerry there to actually get your cinematic responses up and running? Was it there to, in effect, give your head a workout with just how fast and how furious you could throw amazing, highly involving uh, action at an audience? And if so, is that maybe what's happening now in terms of these animations that what was the Tom and Jerry, feel free to have fun and then we're going to hit you with Clark Gable, is now to all the professionals involved in the film's making of animations, feel free to have fun and draw on all those films you grew up with, you know, all you cinephile young dads, which would have been a lot of the people making these films, you know, enjoy yourselves, have a good time. So that then Hans Zimmer for the Kung Fu Panda movies provides beautiful and superbly realised whether you want to call it Chinese music or whether you want to call it Kung Fu music or whether you want to call it whatever, it just fits like a glove in Kung Fu Panda 1 when he's being taught how to do Kung Fu by the use of food. And he's got, you know, there are these six dumplings going up in the air. The music that goes underneath that is not Western music. It is undoubtedly that sense of an Asian music, of a Chinese music, possibly a Japanese music. But it's all done with the with the, the flute, and with tiny bits of percussion, and with the, the 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 stringed instruments. You are so in that world. So I think what people expect when they go and see an animation these days is that it will be very fast moving and could be uh, referencing absolutely anything from anywhere, but will do it a extremely well and b involvingly. And you can really tell when it isn't. Or when it doesn't, and so it's it's a license to sort of um, for the artist, whether you know whatever kind of artist, to sort of let yourself go a bit and, and display your craft in a bit more sort of ostentatious yeah. manner. Um, yeah. where, which is back, you know, fantasy is, is that's what it is. It's a, it's a story form of storytelling that where the writer um, isn't afraid to be telling stories. Uh, so I like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you're. And um, Powell said, "I love doing the children's stuff yeah. because I get so depressed." If I'm just doing, you know, some some action piece or some real kind of hard adult challenging thing, he said, just to let yourself loose in a world in which people are either going to fall in love or they're not, in which they're going to survive or they're not, in which it's mostly about the things that concern kids. So then scoring for kids doesn't become something where you're talking down to those kids. You're talking up to the better side of your own emotions. Mm. Uh, I, I'm in terms of I mean, there's lots to 
uh, obviously in terms of sound, writing on film, sound writing on animation, sound, sound animation, animation being this kind of silent medium. Going back to your point about um, sort of production, distribution, ex exhibition, I guess, of these movies. Um, I know Paul Ward has written some stuff on the animated film uh, and the emergence of the film bill. And while it's specific to kind of the UK context, there is, um, he says that kind of in terms of the short movies, they these cartoons at the start weren't necessarily supporting material, but they were there to emphasise difference. So they were to emphasise, to, to bring out what's happening maybe ontologically, to bring out in terms of a certain kind of, uh, of anarchy. So his argument uh, is that short films on the film bill weren't unimportant. They were vital to a system uh, that was adding emphasis to this mm. primary product. So I think that's... And, and the primary products being the narrative feature film. Mm. Uh, actually, I think the way that you talk about kind of Powell and, and Zimmer, for me, what's striking is that these are people who are now working in feature-length animation. And then they're treating these scores for me. And, and I think that extends to other creative personnel. So the point about How to Train Your Dragon, um, I mentioned Wally earlier, and even this film, the cinematographer is Roger Deakins. Yeah. And, you know, and there, so there are people here that are working. Yeah. It's really interesting that these are, these are certain kinds of creative personnel who are working um, to light, because you mentioned the, the light that's cast when Ranga's first entering the, the saloon. Um, obviously, the camera is different, but the construction of the virtual camera is often done in a similar way. They have mm. different lenses that they can swap in and swap out. So the, the production of these movies is becoming closer to live action in lots of ways and it's through the it's through the work of people like Deakins that you can sort of not legitimise computer animated films but you can sort of say well it's interesting that they're doing certain kinds of consultancy work for these movies in the same way as they would be for why not legitimise those films well I suppose well that would that would suggest that they need legitimising oh I see yes okay fair enough that yeah. that uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, this kind of reclaiming of animation on the basis of who worked on them. They're wonderful anyway. Just interesting that Roger Deakins works on this mm. one. But no, um, so the stuff like Zimmer and Powell, these are people that, you know, have a, a pedigree of outside of, um, of of animation. They aren't people... This isn't the 1930s in Hollywood where you have particular people working at Warner Brothers or you have Treg Brown and mm. Carl Smalling and you have the Disney Mickey Mousing and they, they're working within the confines of these studios. You're getting people that are composers mm. that are creating emotion through soundtrack that are matching a narrative that has peaks and troughs that runs over an hour and a half, two hours with you know, a score that is going up and down, that is dry, that is luscious, you used mm. the word earlier. So I think that's really interesting for me, that these films... Are, are able to, I'm not going to say attract these kinds of personnel, but that, that they are, it's interesting the, the way that you talk about how they are referring to their work on these films as, as a chance to do something that they perhaps don't get a chance to do. Well, I think what you've said there, Chris, actually does answer the impossible question. Come on! You've done it at last, I've done it. It's, it's taken 40-odd <laughs> episodes, but we're there. The quote you said there is, is getting the audience to accept anarchy. I think what an audience goes to an, an animation for nowadays is very highly sophisticated anarchy. If you count anarchy as being the unexpected, as being, you know, you have no idea what's going to come next. And it's interesting, the two animations I've seen most recently in the last week or so, which were Farmageddon and The Addams Family, did not give us enough anarchy. It gave us, they both gave us pretty near perfection in production values, but weirdly enough, either the characterizations or the stories themselves did not take us anywhere we hadn't been before. And that, I think, therefore, our expectations were not in any way met by either of those films, particularly the, the expectations we had of them being animations yeah. and fantasy animations at that. 
I think possibly the fantasy animation job is to give us more fantasy better realised than we can think of for ourselves. And it couldn't do it in those, for me, in those two particular instances. No, because once you have structure and order, that's, that's the fantasy's gone, isn't it? The fantasy exists in the gaps, in the, in the breakage points and things like that. We, we, we keep coming back to this theme of, of sort of anarchy versus, I don't know, organisation, don't we, in, in the podcast? Because we talk to people and you know, on one level you go, you know, animation it can be more anarchic because of what it can express. And then, of course, the, you know, the, how you make this stuff you feel like has to be very organized and regimented and you know labor intensive so how on earth is this true and then we get we hear some animators who talk about the laborious process of sort of you know frame by frame and others because the thing is always unfixed it means it can always be changed so the production process is a lot more chaotic and things are always unfinished so it's interesting that you raise that because i think it's a, it's a thing we keep coming back to that animation is both more on more anarchic as a medium and less anarchic and there's a tension in between the two of them. I wonder whether then the role of these, you know, to, to go back to the mariachi band, that keep coming back in and out of the film, to comment on the film, to anticipate the film, it's a moment of disruption and, and playful anarchy that, I, that I've not seen in these kinds of movies before, where suddenly you have this tangling of the world of the telling and the world of the told, mm. and suddenly, so you and even there's one point where Rand goes to, I guess, within the final 25 minutes, um, which is the lead in to the okay, so we've understood who the villains are, we have a pretty good idea, um, we know the abs absence of water in this town, we sort of know the relationships. Rand goes now returning, I guess, after that wonderful existential. Another one. Um, <laughs> where he encounters the spirit of the West, yeah, yeah, he's walking across the road and it's light and dark. Oh, it's wonderful. Um, and then he turns at one point, he says, we're going to go on a chase or something. And then he turns to the, as if to cue the music. Yeah. And it, I've, I've never seen that level of, <laughs> again, you mentioned right at the start, this idea of meta and, and layering. And, mm. and Alex, your point about sort of being able to tell, to tell stories. The film seems to be playing with levels of narration, but that, that aren't discrete levels. Mm. The characters are, are aware of the stories that are framing them mm. and are able to impact it's, I, I would. I read the Mariachi Band, and I'm so glad we've spoken at length about yeah. the Owl Mariachi Band. It's whatever the job this, isn't it? Um, it's um, is this. It's actually bringing order to the system in a way because it goes back to the narrative. Actually, it's not. But it's I, not but, anarchy in the way that it's just disruptive. It actually imposes order. But but I don't see that as a bad thing because no. I think I think you know fantasy evolves from oral literature, and oral literature works by having order, having beats, structures, that the storyteller then riffs on. So you have to have the beats, or you have complete chaos, and complete, right, I've gone over here, and I don't know how to get these characters out of this situation. If you've got your five, you've got to get from here to here, and then here to here, and then here to here, then you can have fun along the way. And that, to me, is the dynamic set up here, both through the music and through the visuals and through the storytelling, is that the mariachi band provide the beats, Almost, and then anything else that happens in between, as long as we get to the next moment, it's fine. Um, and it re sort of revels in that, that mm. chaos or absurdism or whatever the right word is for it. I think that's true. Again, uh, it, it, for me, it still doesn't completely explain why they're there unless the opening entirely justifies it. The fact that we get them right at the beginning, as we do with the Minions in the Minions films of Despicable Me. So that no matter what this story may be, about to give you, we are here to guide you through, which is, you know, I think, again, is obviously aimed at the kids, but we get it as adults. Later on, however, they, their commentary on the, on, the, on the narrative is just that. It doesn't actually usher in 
the next chapter. <clears throat> the next chapter is almost always ushered in by whatever's, you know, it's, it's spinning off the previous conflict, whatever that is. And quite often, interestingly, the, the characters around Rango who start to sort of come to him, particularly when they go off with the, this massive posse, they become the ones who are kind of driving where Rango thinks he should go next. Because even at the end, Rango can't make up his own mind. He can't decide for himself what he should do. He has to have somebody tell him. And again, I think this is another extraordinary thing about the film, that the, the hero never entirely grows into himself no. at any point. You know, even at the end. He's not become this strong character. He's still actually a bit of a twit and a bit of a loser. And Beans kind of puts up with him. But Beans has obviously got far more of a sense of how to practically survive through this world than Rango has, even, even after all the things he's been through. And I think that's, I suppose that's Johnny Depp too, isn't it? I mean, Johnny Depp's uh, Captain Sparrow is by no means a heroic figure at any point in those films. He's, he's, one, he's, he's responding to uh, stuff going on around him far more than he's driving the narrative himself. So and I suppose maybe that's a Gore Verbinski thing. It's also, it's also the classic existentialist protagonist. He's never actually a character because there is no such thing. No. Um, life is absurd, characters are absurd, so the, the best thing to do is embrace that absurdity. So, you know. And there's one line of dialogue early on, you know, when he first arrives at Dirt and they say it's about time we had a hero around here. Well, actually, the film never, as you say, quite <laughs> follows through with that. Um, and there's, you know, there's a nice, he said about living in his own skin, given that he's introduced his inability to adapt to the location is through <laughs> the shedding of skin. There is something quite, he's still quite ill fitting. Yeah. And there's something that's not quite, his clothes sort of hang off. Yeah. They don't quite fit. Um, I don't know. There's, there's, I think there's a lot to say about the, about the movie. And, and yeah. I and think the, the music doesn't, as it usually does with a kind of, I don't know, to use triple term, serious Western, the music would normally evolve with the evolution of the characters. So you would normally hear little suggestions of themes or whatever, but the main theme, Kapow, would not appear until he finally steps out to meet his destiny or her destiny. With this, it's the same music comes back two or three times throughout fitting with the action. So even at the end, the action when it's, when it's happening, when, when they're all celebrating and there's water shooting up into the air, is still that kind of Gypsy Kings, Mariachi kind of, you know, stuff that we've heard already, which is quite fun, but it's not sort of, you know, riding into the sunset. Interestingly, they do this riding into the sunset thing in the extended version, and it doesn't work. It works far better just leaving Johnny Depp's character in the town with everybody having a great time and the birds basically saying well he's definitely going to die he's probably going to die of a domestic accident which is responsible for so many blah, blah, blah. you know which is a lovely finish mm. but they're also referring to their own lack of cogency in the story which is another thing that still kind of gets to me in a way yeah. that you know they're they're great I and mean, funnily enough I think I said to Charlie, what was your favourite bit about that film? He said the Alphys. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, there we go, a great place to begin and end. Yeah, I yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, yes, well, that, yeah, there were lots to say, as we said, and I'm sure we, there's so many things we, um, we haven't mentioned, but we're running out of time. Um, do we have any sort of final, um, final bits that... Um, we haven't even talked about um, the villainous tortoise. and As long as about anthropomorphism, I guess, a quick note on that would be useful, in that I think the design of the, of the 
of the animals is incredible in this and this blend of you know use of animal hair and feathers as as sort of beards and bushes and and the griminess of some of the characters and the matching of yeah the tortoise is of course the character who's old and uh, seems to have a sort of perspective on life that isn't quite sort of respectful of mortality and it's more thinking about the long term and all that kind of fun stuff um so i don't know if there's anything you can say no or i mean say in many ways that. it's again it's that what we've talked about in terms of the film's ability to gesture towards something and be familiar whilst also hmm. be deviant from it. And so it's very similar in films that would then... There are, it's not hard to find computer animated films, animated films more broadly, that cast animals in particular roles because of certain kinds of uh, connotations around that and we've talked in previous podcasts about the ability of horses to act as dogs in all animated films, um, rather than horses. Um, but there is something, you know, that casting of, of, of animals to play particular roles is, I'm thinking of the, the uh, sloth in Zootopia, a prime example. Um, but there is, again, there seems to be something different about this, this film, and I wonder whether it's, uh, you know, that I'm, I'm interested in whether, where, where and when characters who are non-human lapse into their non-humanness. Because often that is moments of comedy. So actually the bit with the chameleon, uh, when Rango sheds his skin, that's a reminder of, ah, yeah, yeah, because he's a chameleon, of course. And so often an acknowledgement of their non-humanity as opposed to their, effectively they are humans in in animal form. Um, The gestures that are made towards their non-human are often moments that alleviate their humanity and allow us to recognise... Again, it's the meta. I think it's the, oh, yes, because the film has cast those particular animals to be in those particular roles. And for 95% of the movie, they are talking in the voice of Johnny Depp and et cetera. And Ooh. then you have these non-verbal moments where it happens in Puss in Boots where suddenly the, he, he spots, he's Antonio Banderas for 95% of the film. And there are odd little moments where he coughs up a furball or he spots a light on the floor and runs after it. Mm-hmm. And those little moments that alleviate the humanity, I think, are, are really nicely placed in, in, the, in the film. But yeah, we could talk, that, talk about that, we could talk about voice casting, we could talk about all kinds of things. But Again, I think the saloon is the key to here, because it's the first time you meet a lot of the characters in, in Rango. And I think it's found the two that fascinate me are the Undertaker, who is a very smart-looking owl wearing a top hat, and you kind of go, wow, he's the only one who's smart. The rest are, you know, kind of like looking pretty terrible. I believe I'm right in saying there was a particular artist they brought in to design the animal look. Not an animation artist, but a fantasy art, fine artist, as it were, who, who did this work, who then gave them these wonderful crossovers between animals and humans. So that the other, the other one in the, in, the, in the bar for me is the frog who's the barman. And there you have this wonderful sense of, you know, cigar sticking out of his mouth, which looks, because he's got a wide mouth, he's a frog. He's got these kind of orangey eyes. And he talks like that, of course. We got cactus juice. Oh, we got. And that immediately kind of goes, yeah, of course he's a frog. And then you start going with all the others. Well, of course he's a rabbit because he's a bit scared. Of course he's a mouse because that's what a mouse would do. And the mouse has got a little voice like that, which you kind of expect. When the gunslinger comes in, he's an alligator. Of course he's an alligator. He'd have to be some kind of reptile who was a threat to all these little cuddly animals sitting in this bar. And, you know, then you make him sound as much as possible like, uh, what's his name? And you have this, this immediate villain. And making Johnny Depp a lizard means that he's not quite one and not quite the other. He's sort of a reptile. There's a moment when the frog's being chased by the vulture. He says, come on, we're nearly family. 
where you, they sort of are vaguely related as animals. But again, what I think was lovely about that in Rango was that you got the sense that these rather beautiful animals had been rather beautifully distressed. A couple of them you notice have lost limbs and have been replaced with wood. So it's like the town of dirt as you described it. It's made up of whatever bits and bobs are lying around. You've got that extraordinary bird with an arrow through his eye, who's like a kind of extension of the Civil War um, guy still alive in the beginning of the 20s who would be riding through the town on Civil War Remembrance Day or whatever. So it's like he's survived the worst thing that could possibly happen, which is to be shot through the head with an arrow and he's still going. And he's still going to the point where nothing's going to stop him getting on that posse and going, even though he's got an arrow through his head. Stuff like that where you get it that the bird may have been shot with an arrow because he was bird, so he might have been shot for food by somebody in there, but he is also a recognisable Western trope. Things like that, that's been so carefully thought yeah. through. And I take your point about Zootropolis, but the difference with Zootropolis for me is that they're not the original animal enough for me yeah. to be able to remember that. Yep. Whereas these were so obviously the original animals in all their messy, unpleasant desert life, that the, you you didn't have to climb over anything to get to that. Well, in, in fact, that's exactly the narrative of Zootopia that these animals have lost their instinct, mm. and so that's part of the narrative is that they are too, you know, quote unquote, disnified. They have a they've gone back to kind of feral states, mm. and so actually the film itself becomes an interesting commentary on what it would mean to cast certain characters or certain animals as characters for them to forget that, but then to find it again. And so, so Rango does that without that as a narrative device. It just, it just sort of is that. Um, and Alex, any other final, we've done anthropomorphism, any other final fantasies? <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I, there's things we could talk about and stuff. I'd be, I, we're not going to do this, but I'd be interested um, to talk about sort of the lineage. We've talked a lot about how this is film is very different yeah. From sort of other the dream, what happened? Why did this film not create a whole sort of canon of Gore Verbinski produced <laughs> uh, strange animations like this? And it, because it did well, critically, it did well commercially. It did win an Oscar. So did win an Oscar was it just yeah. because they all found time in their busy schedules to create this thing, and then they went on and you know? I don't know. From, did the Lone it, Ranger? Yeah, then. it's 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 a well. It seems to be, and the way that we've talked about it, it's not as going to have this sort of impact. But it's it seems to be that. It's, it, it is in 2011 what something like Spider-Verse is now, where you have these two anomaly films um, and, and you don't quite know what to do with them and we sort of talk a bit about them. And uh, For me, it's one of those movies where it comes along and does something different with the computer animated film aesthetic. Um, I don't know I don't know why. If you think about the cast, if you think about the way it looks, you think about the music, um, the director, the uh, Paramount as a company, you think of, um, in fact, it won the Oscar and a very rare case of a non-Pixar or Disney movie that won the Best Animated Feature Oscar. Um, I don't know why. I don't know why. But I think it's a really good question. Yeah. I really do. I, and interestingly, That's your impossible question right there. <laughs> That's your impossible question. Interestingly, you mentioned the Leica Studios, and I love the Leica Studios stuff, but I do find myself continually tripping over the amount of effort and the amount my attention's being drawn to the very nature of the animation itself. I get, to, I mean, with Kubo and the Two Strings, I was forever looking at those extraordinary kind of textures. 
and it looked beautiful, it felt great, but at no time was I therefore able to lose myself completely in the story of Kubo's experience. Same with Paranorman, same with Box Trolls. They're great stories, but you're always being reminded, and we have put so much effort into this. This is a fantastic piece of animation. You've really got to love what we did here and what we did here. I never thought that for a moment with Rainbow. Mm. And maybe the very fact that it was, you know, forgive me, given the sheer amounts of toil and money and the rest of it, tossed off as the next thing off the, off the block for, for Binsky and Logan, for all I know, before they then got on and did something else. I, it does strike me as extraordinary that such good quality in all the various terms that we've talked about here should happen, flower, bang, and then back down again. But then maybe that is, that is the, one of the beauties of the computer-generated animation, that it could not have happened before computer-generated animation. Mm -hmm. That what it is is a bunch of people who love their movies being let loose with a tremendous amount of, of you know, industrial ability and phenomenally high-end computer graphics, yeah. creating whatever the hell it is they want to create. And it, you know, again, from that point of view, a surprise, you know, a surpri in, in, in the way that we talked about, you know, should audiences, I think should audiences should be expecting anarchy. Well, here's your anarchy. As you say, beautifully organised, yeah. <laughs> structured. Have a good time. This is all the stuff we get off on. Hope you get off on it as well. Then look forward to Pirates of the Caribbean 3, which will be nowhere near as good. <laughs> well, on that bombshell, I guess yeah. we, should, yeah. <laughs> we should wrap up. Um, Neil, thank you very much for, for... I mean, certainly I feel differently about the film than I did. Yeah, you, you say surprise, and Neil, on surprise. You know, for 72 hours ago, if I knew I was going to have that much to say, and we'd have that much to say yeah, about, that about, as you said at the beginning, that lizard movie with Johnny Depp. Um, I've gone through a journey with it, so um, absolutely, thanks so much for recommending it, and I hope listeners um, go out and see it if they've not seen it already. Yeah, um, Neil, we normally ask people what's next for you. I feel like you do lots of stuff yeah. in terms of... Well, at some time, fairly soon after that, will be a new TV series called The Sound of TV. Which oh, terrific. I'm, we're not shooting till January, but by April, it will hopefully, please God, all be in the can and reasonably finished and done. And I think is then going out in autumn 2020. Cool. Great. This will be perfectly That's exciting. Perfectly done. Uh, and in terms of, can people find you online anywhere? All over the place, yes. Uh, uh, www.neilbrand.com or Facebook. Or I'm uh, Neil K. Brand on Twitter. So say hello. That would be great. Please do. Um, so, yes, thank you very much for, for, for joining us and, and giving up uh, time to talk about uh, Rango. I'm going to leave the uh, closing remarks to Alex because uh, it's very much your bag. Thanks. Uh, so you can find us on Twitter at FananimResearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research. You can find us on Facebook. Otherwise, uh, check out on the site, fantasy-animation.org see what we're up to um, and get in touch. Thanks very much for another episode and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.